It's from the book of Colossians. Again, Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul from a Roman prison to a group of people he's never met before. He's heard about the church from a trusted pastor named Epaphras, who took the gospel, told him about Jesus, and the church was birthed. And so Paul has heard good things about the church. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And because of that report and because of the church, Paul says, my commitment is to pray for you. Verse 9. And so from the first day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And he talks about how Epaphras, the pastor, is with Paul, and he and Paul are both praying, chapter 4 and verse 12, where he writes, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So he's he's struggling with you. It's one of the favorite words in this book, struggling, laboring that you'll be mature, standing in all the will of God. And really the issue that was confounding the church and Paul had heard about it was, was something called the Colossian heresy. Now the Colossian heresy is difficult to define because it had several strands that woven together made a strong rope. Part of the Colossian heresy was just the hydra-headed issue of what was in the air of Colossae at that time, or teaching, all the teachings though, always downgraded the uniqueness and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And as I talked to you about this today, listen, there's nothing new under the sun. The the devil, the devil is a, um, is not creative. Only God can create. The devil can only destroy. And so the, the devil just twists and turns and distorts. And, and what he did in the first century, he's still doing today. So as I walk with you through these things, you go, yeah, I've heard that this week. Yes, I've heard that. Yeah, I'll, because it's the same thing. So the Colossian heresy involved, and we mentioned several elements. No, first of all, truth and truth claims are negotiable. You know, there's no truth. So what is true for your group or your age or your zip code or your ethnicity? It's up in the air. In Colossians 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elementary spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. So, so there's different truth claims. And so that you just move the goalpost. In 1990, there was a very famous football game played. Uh, it was in October of 1990, Colorado, a team pursuing the national championship, visited Missouri. And they played before 46,000 people, and, and Colorado was heavily favored, but as the last minute of the game was going down, Missouri was ahead um, in a shocking reality, and Colorado had the ball first and goal. And it's called the fifth down game. And so if you're from Zimbabwe, 
or Lithuania, you get four downs to make a first down in American football, four downs, okay? So first down, two yards, second down, three yards, third down, one yard, uh, confusion, fourth down, stop cold, two yards, fifth down. They hiked the ball and they scored. Officials said, touchdown. Well, the, the bench of Missouri exploded. Said, you just gave them five downs. And the officials conferred for 20 minutes. And they said, yeah, we made a mistake, but they scored. So the, the game goes to Colorado, which proves that the officials were indeed from the Atlantic Coast Conference. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, you, you can't play sports. I mean, baseball. What if, what if you visit, you know, let's say you visit Cincinnati and, and you hit a ball in the outfield and you're around in first base and all of a sudden the shortstop comes blazing across and tackles you. And they tag you and you're out. You don't tackle in baseball. What do we do in Cincinnati? You, you don't do that. You know, you've got to have fixed standards. And see, that, that's what happens in today. People are always moving the goalposts. Well, that was good for you, it's not good for me. It's really about preference. You like Italian food, I like Indian food. You like soccer, I like baseball. You like the morning, I like the evening. It's, it's all about preference. And so part, part of the problem of the Colossian heresy was this issue of the truthfulness and the glory and the grandeur of Christ. A second strand is that there were rules keeping. There's a group in Colossae, they were, they were mystical Judaizers who said, you got to keep all of these rules, many of them not even dealing with essential issues, but you got to keep all these rules to be made right in the presence of God. And so Paul thunders forth in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, if, if with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, or the teachings of this world, why is it that you still are alive in the world and do you submit to the regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That was their slogan. Referring to things that are all going to perish. And this is all according to human precepts and traditions. He said these things have an appearance of wisdom. It's very interesting. They have an appearance of wisdom. Legalism has an appearance of wisdom in prom promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's what I call big stick living. In other words, if somebody's standing over you with a big enough stick to hit you, you'll live a certain way. And Paul says, you know, you, 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 you can't live that way. You've got to know the grace and the power and the grandeur of Jesus. And so she says, don't fall prey to these people who said, you've got to keep this rules regulation, which has an appearance of wisdom, appearance of being holy, but there's nothing to it. And the third strand was all dealing with mystery. The people in Colossae that were probably what we would call nascent Gnostics, the beginning of Gnosticism, talked about mystery. Certain words or certain incantations or certain slogans open the mind of the divine to you. And they said it's all a mystery. So, so Paul takes his word mystery and turns it upside down. He says in chapter 1, he says, verse 26, the, the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints is Jesus Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises. He, he says in verse 27, that you would know the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
And so he says, the mystery is Jesus. The mystery is who he is and who he claimed to be. Therefore, verse 16 of chapter 2, let, let no one pass judgment on you in regards to drink and food and the festival or a new men or a Sabbath. These are all a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises. And so the devil travels along well-worn paths. You've heard these arguments probably this week. If you read the popular press, this week, these arguments, this week. And it's just the hydra-headed argument of the Colossian heresy. And so what's Paul's response? This is beautiful. Paul's response, chapter 1, verse 28 and following. And we've, what, what does he do? He says, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. We just talk about Christ. We talk about the glory of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the wonder of the cross, the empty tomb. We, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching all men with wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And then he says this, for this reason I toil, I struggle, I labor with all the energy that powerfully works within me. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle. See, he used the word struggle in two different verses. So I, I, I'm, it means it's an athletic metaphor. It means to struggle with intense pain, agony, and effort. When you're trying to build Christ into your children, your community group, or your Sunday Bible fellowship class, or, or your family, you have to struggle. We've got to think well. We've got to think deeply. We've got to think biblically. We've got to struggle and really get this right. And so Paul says, you've got to understand that. So I'm going to give you two different issues in the Colossian heresy today. The warning, the apostolic response, and then what we're to do. The warning is this. Christ in Colossae was seen as one among many options. To get into the presence of God, you can go through Jesus. It's all about preference. You can go through, in our day and age, Shiva, Vishnu, Buddha, Muhammad, whatever. He's seen as one among many. You experience the divine through visions or rules keeping or the Greek Roman pantheon. Now the apostolic response was this, behold the mystery and the glory of Jesus. Behold the mystery of God fully revealed in the person of Christ. He is almighty God. He's the promise fulfilled. Behold the greatness of Christ. Now. As I've been recuperating from surgery, I've been watching a lot of BBC police shows. They're really good. And uh, so the other day my wife said, I I'm tired of your BBC police shows because they're all depressed and most of them are alcoholics. I don't know what it is about the British policemen, but they are, but they're really good. And I said, okay, so I have to be at the library and I picked up what are, I thought might be a couple of chick flicks to kind of balance the scale a little bit. Didn't know anything about the movie, so I took one home and put it in. And I'm going to tell you the name of the movie, because sometimes I'm afraid I tell you the name of a movie that's horrible, and you're not listening very well, you go out and get it, and it's a horrible movie. So I'm going to tell you the name of the movie. Let me just say it got 18% in Rotten Tomatoes. And that is really, really generous. It should have been in single digits. It was, I only watched it for 20 minutes. It was horrible. It, it had like 10 stars. I mean, 10 well-known Hollywood names for gifted actors, and it was horrible. It's about a group of family members getting together for Christmas and they're all incredibly depressed. And I thought, I'm, I don't want to hear about depressing people today. Anyway, but I did get this from it. About 15 minutes in the movie before I turned it off at the 18 minute mark, 
there, there's a young woman who's gone home to be with her family and she's hanging out at the airport because she doesn't want to go home because she hates her family. And there's a young man in the U.S. military who's there trying to get to his family, but there's a snowstorm, so he can't get out, and she doesn't want to go home. So they meet in a bar, and they have a dialogue. And she says, in the discussion, she says, you're not one of those, one of those Fox News-watching churchy people, are you? Oh, and he goes, yeah, yeah, I am. And she kind of rolls her eyes. And this is the dialogue. He says to her, look, you believe in God, right? And she says, which one? Now, this pad has just died. So hit the slide that says, anyone, just pick one. Can you guys do that? I'm sorry. Just hit anyone. The slide says, anyone, pick one. I hit the wrong button and it's not working. There you go. Thank you. I'll kind of cue you in. Thanks for being so, 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 so uh, patient. So he says, he says, anyone pick one. Did you hear that? That's Americana. That's American religion. Pick a user-friendly, designer-friendly God. You say Jesus, I say morally therapeutic deism. You say Christ the Redeemer, I say mysticism. Vishnu. And they had this dialogue. And he says, she says, you know what I believe in? I believe in the sound of Nina Simone's voice. I feel like that is the closest I'll ever come to believing in God. So she, Nina Simone was a great singer 30 years ago. So that's the I was just absolutely thunderstruck. Which one? I just choose one. It's no big deal. It's all a matter of preference. And, and I'm saying that, you know, really, if, if we're going to hold to the, to the Scripture and the reality of Christ, we've got to be zealous for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to be very careful and understand that. We need to struggle that people walk in faith, to live well because they think well. Now, there's a man named Reza Aslan, which is a cool name. And he's written several books on comparative religion. He did a thing on CNN recently on faith versus religion. And then I, wrote, I read a couple of articles that he had written. And he's a very articulate, gracious man from Iran. His parents came from Iran, came here when the Shah was overthrown in 1979. And, and in his um, article, one of the articles he, he wrote, he said this. Good. Faith is mysterious and ineffable, which means it cannot be defined. You just cannot define faith. It's so, it's so rich and deep, you cannot define it. Faith is mysterious and ineffable. It is an emotional, not necessarily a rational experience. Close quote. And then he goes on and says, the quotes in the worship guide, he says, you know, my well from which I draw my water is Islam. And in particular, the Sufi tradition. Sufis are mystics, they do the whirling dervish thing. Let me be clear, I am Muslim not because I think Islam is truer than other religions, it isn't, but because Islam provides me with the language I feel most comfortable with in expressing my faith. It provides me with certain symbols and metaphors for thinking about God that I find useful in making sense of the universe and my place in it, close quote. So what, what, what Mr. Aslan is saying is that I don't follow the Islamic creed that says there's no God but 
Allah and Muhammad is his prophet because it's truer than other religions. It's just, it just meets my needs. Now, let me tell you something. As soon as he said that, there are probably several fatwas taken out by Islamic leaders on his life where they kill him because that, that goes against everything Islamic people believe. He says, but, but really, it, it just it's, it, it has the metaphors and, and the imagery that meets my needs. Now, some of us come from Christian traditions. I, I went to a very small church, and every time I go to that small church, the, the smells evoke tons of memories. And I'll go to the graveyard and see person after person after person that loved me and cared for me. And it's dear to my soul. But I do not follow Christianity because there is an evocative memory narthex that comes into my brain as I smell or as I think. I follow the reality of Christ because the tomb is empty, because he's risen from the dead and he's ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I follow the, the, the risen Christ because he claimed to be God and he is God. It's a rational faith. It's a faith of substance. Now, experience is important, but it's all about truth as the foundation. It's not preference. The tomb is empty. Paul says, if you don't believe me, talk to 500 brothers who saw him resurrected from the dead. That's I believe because if I had been there, you'd have been there on the day that Jesus was crucified and we ran to the cross and put our hand up and down the cross, we would have come away with a bloody hand because splinters would have been in our fingers and our palm. And when he was risen from the dead, he said to his men, touch me, I'm real. So it's all about, it's all about reality, conversely. There's a woman named Dorothy Sayers who wrote a book called entitled Creed or Chaos. And there's a quote here you'll see. This is what Dorothy Sayers says. It is worse than useless. <laughs> this is great stuff. For Christians to talk about the importance of Christian morality unless they're prepared to take their stand upon the fundamentals of Christian theology. It is a lie to say that dogma or doctrine does not matter. It matters enormously. It is fatal to let people suppose that Christianity is only a mode of feeling. It is vitally necessary to insist that it is first and foremost a rational explanation of the universe. This requires hard, tough, exacting, and complex thinking and doctrine. And she's right. Christ is God. He's risen from the dead. See, orthodoxy, which means right thinking, gives us tracks to run on. Today and here and in the worship center, we quoted the Apostles' Creed. And I've, I've, I've always been interested, thought about this. And the Apostles' Creed was put together in the early church, 200, 250. It expresses basic orthodox beliefs about the reality of Christ. When you quote the Apostles' Creed, part of, the, part of, the, part of it is this. Um, he's, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Why name the name Pontius Pilate? I mean, Pontius Pilate was a third-rate official that was scandalous in his behavior. Pontius Pilate was mean-spirited. And in fact, historically, we believe that the emperor, a few years after the resurrection of Christ, brought Pontius Pilate to Rome on charges of being inept and cruel and, in order, and, and so he wouldn't face a trial. Pontius Pilate committed suicide. Pontius Pilate. 
Here's why the early church said Pontius Pilate. I believe, it's just my opinion. There was a teaching that was going around in the early church that Christ didn't have a real body. It's called docetism. And, and of course, you start moving down the way and you say, well, maybe he really wasn't historical. I think the early church put in there Pontius Pilate because they want to say, Jesus lived a real life and he suffered a real death under a real man and rose from a real grave with a real body and rose victorious to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Therefore, he was crucified under a guy named Pontius Pilate. So that forever and ever through the ages, the church would quote and affirm the historicity of the Christian religion and the faith of Christ. The second thing is this. Interesting phrase here. I thought about this a lot. Verse, verse 4 of chapter 2. The warning is beware plausible arguments. Chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Plausible arguments are arguments that make sense to the cultural ethos. They're not wild and crazy arguments. They are plausible arguments. They, they, they make sense to the ambiance around you. Uh, one plausible argument we've already talked about is, well, may, maybe Jesus isn't the only manifestation of, the ultimate manifestation of God. Maybe there's other ways to get to God other than through the, through the cross of Christ. You hear that today? Of course, the Bible doesn't allow that to be taught. Or how about morality? An example. I read an article a few weeks ago from a magazine called The Atlantic. The article's about two years old, but The Atlantic ran an article, cover article, talking about the glory and wonder of cohabiting in our culture. Cohabitation is two people living in the same house and having intimacy before they get married. And, and they, were, they made some incredible statements. Some of them, are, I think, are spurious. But they did say this, that cohabitation has increased by nearly 900% since 50 years ago. Think about that. That's a tsunami. In the year 1996, there were 2.9 million couples living together. 2012, which is the last census we have for this, there were 7.8 million, almost a 300% increase, 250%. That's, that's amazing. And, and so you back up, and then they said this, which has got to be one of the most, uh, what else? I'll just read it. You make up your mind. Quote, cohabitation has become so common that it is almost odd not to test drive a partner before marriage, close quote. Test drive. Now, if you're a father of a daughter, guys, we protect our daughters and our wives. We do. You protect them. You stand in the gap. If somebody comes to your house and your daughter's 20, 21, 22, 23, whatever, and he says to you, I want to test drive your daughter, what do you do? That's just what you do. You kind of throw your hand out to deflect his view, and then you come like this and you hit him on the jaw. You take him out. Just knock him out, carry him off, throw him in the road. I mean, can you believe that? I want to test drive your daughter. Give me a break. But that's what people are hearing today. And you go, well, he says, well, you know, when people live together before marriage and wait till they get married, they don't divorce as often as people get married when they're 19 and 20 and 21 years of age, so forth and so on. But listen, the, the orthodoxy, the Bible gives us a track to run on. And I was thinking about this, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, the writer of Hebrews is closing his book with this, these pithy statements that are not in any way cobbled together. They're just here and there. He says this, verse 1. He says, uh, let brotherly love continue. 
Verse 2, don't, don't forget to be hospitable because sometimes you entertain angels without being aware of it. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though you're in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body of Christ. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. Well, that settles it for me. I don't need to go to the Atlantic magazine, as wonderful as they may be in creative. I have a track to run on. Next verse, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, and so forth and so on. But the Scripture gives us a track to run on. So part of the issue is you look at this and look at the supremacy of Christ, and go to the book of Colossians. The glory of the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. October 1517, Martin Luther started the Reformation. Amazing. And the Reformation heritage is, is the gospel. You're saved by faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so Paul doesn't use the word alone, but he might as well. Listen to some of these verses. Verse 13 of chapter 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's done this. He's, he's delivered us. He's transferred us. Chapter 1, verse 22, but because of that, he says, you've been presented as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is what Christ has done for you. Chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all his legal demands by nailing it to the cross. Now, in other words, the only thing we brought to the table, if you're a believer, is dead. Dead. There's no cooperation. God breathed life into a corpse. And you don't do anything to earn his favor. You don't do anything to keep his favor. You just run to the cross. And you talk about the sufficiency and the glory and the grandeur and the goodness of Christ. Now, this is the uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So there have been some books that are recently released. And there's a book that's just been released a few months ago written by an eminent Australian historian entitled Martin Luther, Renegade and Prophet, 600 pages. And she's a highly decorated historian, and this is, this is a, a, a book review from a secular journal. And I was reading it this week, and I just wanted to stand up and sing the doxology. It was really good. And I'm just going to read two, two paragraphs, because it is really, really good. Let me just say, the guy who wrote this book review gets the gospel. I want you to hear it. He says this. The author deals with details of Luther's monastic life, but she does not acknowledge or wrestle with the driving impulse that both dominated and demoralized the young monk. By entering the, the monastic life, Luther sought to place himself in a situation where he could meet his maker prepared, but his efforts, fasting and beating himself and confessing his sins, but his efforts, while exceedingly 
beyond the most strict and demanding counsels did not result in the slightest confidence that he could find peace with God. That came when he studied the book of Romans. And St. Paul's word in Romans 1, there Paul rejoiced in what terrified Luther. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. Until Luther discerned the emphasis that the righteous one will live by faith in the finished work of Jesus, and not by endeavors to placate a wrathful judge, Luther had stumbled upon the teaching from then on associated with him, justification by faith alone through the work of Christ alone. See, I, don't, see, I want to sing. See, it's a secular journal. He's preaching the gospel. But, but, but her otherwise very insightful and helpful treatment fails to discern how this not only freed Luther from his anguish, but dominated his theology. Other students have shown that the affirmation of justification by faith lies at the base of the subsequent developments of Luther's thought until it became the recurring leitmotif or central thought in his, in his words and his deeds. Luther could also discern threats to this foundational truth under every rock and every blade of grass, and when he did, he thrashed out vigorously, even hatefully, against his colleagues. But I, I just read that and thought, he gets it. And that's why, you know, I'm sorry, but go show the dog. That's where we're going next, the dog. So I, I said that if I were getting a dog, there's going to be a, a Labrador retriever on the screen right now. Labrador retriever. How much is that doggy in the window? Labrador retriever? Okay, maybe not. I have a slide there with a Labrador retriever. Yeah, and the word alone. I said, if I'm getting a lab, labs are great dogs. They're great dogs. If I was going to get a dog, I would name him alone. Just remind myself, whenever I called him, I'm saved by grace alone through the work of Jesus alone. Because my heart is spring-loaded, and yours is too, to think, what must I do to earn your favor, God? The cross has done it. The cross has done it. That's the gospel. So I name my dog alone. Now, some of you are pregnant. I don't think I name a child alone, just your dog, okay? So you want to be careful here about getting, you know. But, 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 but that, 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 that is the gospel of grace. So this last Friday night, I had the privilege of being involved in uh, Palmetto Christian Academy graduation, our school here, 25th year. Really God. Um, it was really an honor. And from the very inception of our school, maybe two or three years in, there was a little song that I've seen countless kindergartners and first graders sing with all of their heart, and we closed the service on Friday night with this song. It's called <clears throat> You Are My All in All. Let me read the words. You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. You are my all in all. Taking my cross, my sin, my shame. Rising again, I bless your name. You are my all in all. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. And we, we sang that, and I've seen these kids sing it. It just, uh, I get emotional. 
And I thought the glory of Jesus is that it's understandable enough for a child to sing and be glad in and is deep enough for the greatest minds to get together and talk about Nicene Christology or the hypostatic union or Chalcedonian, the fact that he was totally God and totally man or on and on and on. Behold the glory and the majesty and the incomprehensibility and the wonder of the triune God in the person of Jesus. And I say to you, brothers and sisters, let us be people who examine everything in light of the glory of Jesus. Everything. There was, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is, is, is really dealing with these issues. And he talks about in chapter 11, if someone comes or proclaims another Jesus, you know, a preference Jesus, not the eternal God in the flesh dying on the cross for your sins. If anyone comes preaching another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it enough. He says, but don't do it. And the previous chapter says, chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, he says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, plausible statements, and every lofty opinion against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Jesus. We examine everything under the reality of Christ. So in 1991, there was an art curator by the name of Nicholas Perry who became the head of the London National Gallery. And there's a painting by a man named Raphael who died in 1520 at the age of 37, and it's entitled The Madonna of the Pinks. Can you show the, show the Madonna of the Pinks? It's a painting by Raphael. The Madonna of the Pinks. There she is. And so this guy's in a, in a castle in northern England, and as he's walking around. They have all these beautiful tapestries and artworks. And he goes down a side hallway, and there's this painting in a beautifully ornate frame. And he says to the guy who owns the castle, he says, you know, uh, tell me about this painting. He says, oh, that's a, a, repli a, a replication of Raphael. It's an old, but it's, it's, it's not the real deal. And uh, it's the Madonna of the Pinks. And the art historian curator says, well, he said he thought to himself, why would you put a reproduction in a, such a beautiful frame? He says, the frame was just absolutely beautiful. So he says to his host, he says, do you mind if I take this back to London and examine it and to see how old it is? He says, no, oh, it's just a... It's just on the side hallway, take it. So he goes back and, and, he, and he brings, he says, he put it under the infrared and electron microscope and he had these art historians to come in. They examined it over the course of weeks and they determined it was an original. And so they, he called his man, the man who owned the castle and they started talking and after going back and forth, the National Gallery of Art bought the painting for $42 million. Wow. $42 million. And I thought, in my life, what is the infrared and the electron microscope to prove the validity and worth of anything? 
What gives me a track to run on? It is the glory and the majesty and the goodness of the Lord Christ by the power of the Spirit as revealed in the Word of God. And that was Paul's passion for the church. Because when you get Jesus right, you get it right. Eternally God, the Savior on the cross for our sins, risen victorious over death, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, praying for us, coming again, spoken with finality. Behold the greatness of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We, we thank you, Lord, uh, that as we live in, live in a cacophonic age of various strands of well-meaning people who speak in such a way that they, they don't honor Christ, that Christ is one among many, or Christ was a diligent role model or a hero, but we stop and we bow the knee and said, behold, the eternal God, supernaturally born, fulfilling all the prophecies, living a sinless life, dying the cross for our sins, rising victorious over death, ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Lord, all reality and hope finds its meaning in Jesus. So teach us that, and let us communicate that to our friends and our neighbors and our family members. To the glory of the name of Christ. Lord, build your church. Build your church. Build us. And we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.